Welcome to Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Webinaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland and in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Today, we start part two of our series on unpacking sovereignty. We'll begin this second part of our series in the early 1970s, just before the land claim was officially filed. Our guests today are Professors Harold Prince and Darren Rako. Professor Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He is the Distinguished Professor of Anthropology and an Emeritus at Kansas State University. Professor Darren Renko is a member of the Penobscot Nation and an Associate Professor of uh, Anthropology and Chair of Native American Studies at the University of Maine. So let's begin. And I would first like to lay some groundwork on the early 1970s as to the condition of the tribes in their communities. Uh, to get a real good idea of those conditions, we'll take a look at the 1974 report by the Maine Advisory Committee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Uh, this report makes findings and recommendations to Congress. I just wanna read uh, a couple paragraphs from the letter of transmittal uh, dated 1972 to the US Commission on Civil Rights. And uh, it begins, uh, Maine Advisory Committee, pursuant to its responsibility to advise the Commission about civil rights problems in this state, submits this report on federal and state services and the Maine Indian. Through its investigation and hearing, the Advisory Committee concludes that Maine Indians are being denied services provided other American Indians by various federal agencies, including the Bureau of Indian Affairs, U.S. Department of the Interior, and the Indian Health Service, uh, U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. The committee further concludes that Maine's Indians are entitled to these services and that their continued denial constitutes invidious discrimination against Maine Indians, while at the same time placing a disproportionate burden on Maine taxpayers. The advisory committee also found that half of the Indians in Maine are not receiving state Indian services because they live off reservation. The committee recommends that the state develop an integrated program of services for members of the four tribes, Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, Micmac, and Maliseet, regardless of the residency on or off reservation. Uh, both state and federal services have been withheld from a people whose need for assistance is tragically evident. Unemployment among Maine Indians as of 1973 was reliably estimated at 65%. A 1971 survey of off-reservation housing for Indians found 45% substandard and poor. The uh, I wanna to skip to, um, in addition to its investigation of the denial of specific Indian services, the advisory committee reviewed the various federal and state programs for which Maine Indians are generally eligible as citizens. 
In these programs, the advisory committee found a wide spectrum of attitudes towards Maine Indians. It is evident that there are areas of progress, yet uh, it is also clear that Indians have seldom been included in the planning or decision-making process which affects their lives. I want to end right there. And I think we can see that uh, there's also a mention of uh, substandard housing that was built uh, by money that was taken out of the uh, Passamaquoddy Trust Fund for the Passamaquoddies and how that, that uh, those houses were not even up to par for uh, putting, for bringing uh, foster uh, children to their state homes. So, okay, so let's begin here. And uh, I'll, let's start with uh, Professor Prince, Harold. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Donna and Darren. Uh, thank you for uh, inviting uh, us back to your show. One of the uh, important things from an historical perspective is that is the date of that report, which is uh, 1974. And the reason I emphasize the date is um, there are two significant things that preceded this report. And uh, number one is the start of the kickoff of the what became the main Indian land claims in 1972. And um, perhaps equally important uh, for the larger picture was um, 1973 Wounded Knee. Uh, in other words, this came a year after Wounded Knee, the occupation of Wounded Knee by the American Indian Movement that um, uh, resulted in a standoff with the uh, federal authorities, the FBI and several other uh, law enforcement units that were sent to Pine Ridge uh, in South Dakota. Pine Ridge uh, is the reservation, of course, and the Bundati has an historical significance because of the massacre in 1890 when the U.S. Cavalry uh, massacred uh, men, women, and children unarmed uh, in a very cold uh, winter night. And that was um, historically in uh, non-native textbooks often referred to as the so-called Battle of Bundati, whereas in fact it was a massacre. And the occupation um, by the American Indian movement of that hamlet with a small church and a small cemetery in South Dakota uh, in the Northern Plains uh, was chosen because of its historical significance of the injustice by the uh, federal government, but also the state governments and dominant society in general um, in terms of um, continue to perpetrate uh, injustice uh, to uh, North America's indigenous peoples. So the litany of um, problems that the report of 1974 in Maine refers to is not just an identification of social problems, economic problems, high unemployment, um, you name it, but in essence um, also that here we have a situation that America is um, basically telling the world about the poverty in the third world, when in fact, uh, much of Indian country resembles the so-called third world in terms of its uh, ongoing colonial uh, situation and exploitation of 
minerals, of uh, lumber, of uranium, you name it, a lot of other resources taken from Indian lands when there's in fact an incredible, incredible poverty on these reservations. So there was a contradiction between what America tried to message the rest of the world as the leader of the free world, the most wealthy, most powerful, prosperous nation um, that uh, was kind of showing how capitalism really worked in a positive way, according to the uh, US government, as against to, um, the, let's say, Chinese communism, or at that time, Soviet, uh, Soviet Union communism. Uh, so it was this Cold War situation when, within which all these kind of things have to be situated. And so there was a sensitivity, a growing sensitivity and awareness on the part of segments in uh, dominant society that realized that if uh, nothing would be done was not only uh, a problem in terms of uh, human rights, uh, in terms of the right to have a life of dignity and respect, uh, but also someone a life free of uh, hunger and free of uh, misery. And here's in the United States, the native inhabitants were living, as I mentioned earlier, in these third world conditions, many of them. And uh, that would be intolerable, not only from a human rights perspective, but also from a Cold War perspective and uh, a growing militancy, uh, radicalization as happened in the African-American population with the Black Power movement that began to happen also in Indian country with the um, so-called Red Power movement, um, as was exemplified by the American Indian movement uh, that took the action at um, the occupation of Wounded Knee that then, then led to a standoff of historic uh, proportions. And it was a major embarrassment uh, to the United States government on every level. And so Maine, in many ways, was reproducing that same kind of uh, embarrassing situation that the federal government uh, was suffering with respect to its uh, malpractices uh, uh, in Indian country um, on a smaller scale, but it also was happening here. And a number of Wabanaki, uh, Mi'kmaq, uh, but also uh, Penobscot, amongst others, um, had uh, become themselves radicalized uh, as a result of the action uh, by members of the American Indian Movement and also within uh, the Boston uh, Indian Council, which um, uh, numbered uh, several thousand uh, Native Americans from numerous tribes, uh, including uh, Western tribes like the Lakota from Pine Ridge. So in other words, uh, these numbers uh, of poverty and uh, misery and um, suffering on the reservations, uh, they are in many ways not new, that that miserable situation had been in existence for two centuries. The question is why in 1974 do we begin to see these kind of reports about an anxiety? And as I mentioned before, a land claims had just been filed for two thirds of the state of Maine and the military, militant action had just happened uh, a year before in uh, at uh, Wounded Knee. And these are the larger um, ramifications within which I at least uh, see those kind of reports. Darren? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Donna and Harold. Um, really happy to be joining you both again uh, this week. The, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I of course I agree with with Harold's um, perspective on the um, broader context. Um, I th I think there are a number of things in um, that you see in the civil rights report that are ongoing, and you know I would say just if you look at the unemployment rates, you know, for, for both on and off reservation Indians and Donna, you mentioned some of these statistics, but you know, the unemployment rates being quite high between 60 and 80% for on reservation Indians, and then roughly 50% for off reservation Indians. Um, and this being structural that, that this is, you know, uh, not, uh, I think a lot of um, labor at the time was being done by Indians, but they were not being retained as full employees and, and working a lot of day labor, um, you know, the kinds of work that, uh, and, and many moving away and, and creating this sort of back and forth with Boston and places in Connecticut for to go and, and, and do labor where they would be adequately, uh, where we as in Indians would be adequately compensated. So I think, yeah, the, this tension, you see this in other places in Indian country. I think, you know, with, with the, the lawsuit, uh, the, the Passamaquoddy tribe versus um, Morton lawsuit, which leads to, which has the subsequent, you know, pressure that leads to the 1980 Settlement Act. Um, you, you see this, you know, acts of, of political, um, Uniqueness, I think, even in Maine, you know, I think that there were demonstrations on Route One by Passamaquoddy women in the, in the early seven, late sixties, early seventies. I think, I do think, um, the context of activism just looks really different, where the the private is becoming much more public, you know, in in, in forms of political action, um, and of course, Maine Indians are actively engaging in that. I, I think, even beyond that, the 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 and we talked about this last time or in, in times past <laughs> that, um, you know, even in the 50, you know, in the forties and fifties, you know, with attempts to, you know, completely end the Indian experiment or reservations, you know, there was active uh, political engagement. Um, we talked about Penobscot's going to the UN and, and, and various forms of, of engagements in the 1950s and then running through the the 60s you know other forms of of activism and engagement and i think it doesn't come it comes from the ground up but also from from above uh, to below you know that there are these newish opportunities and i think the lawsuit the court you know reviewing courts willing to at least consider the notion that, uh, although I was just rereading the Passamaquoddy <laughs> versus Morton case, Donna, and uh, the federal government um, tries their hardest to not be involved in anything with dealing with our main Indians. There's a series of uh, openings that the court sort of says, federal government, you, you don't have to, we don't, we don't want to rule against you in this case, if you just sort of say, you know, this is, you have no real sort of precedent. They're all, all the precedent that somehow um, they were relying on that, uh, because our tribes had no direct treaties with the United States, that, that they weren't part of the trust response. But all those cases that went against them, they're like, you know, we're going to probably rule against you. And the federal government's like, no, we don't care. 
<laughs> you make us do it. They'd really, they really did not want to. And you know, the move to making this this case a declaratory judgment one, um, and basically saying we are full tribes here in the state of Maine uh, as of 1975, that the federal government recognizes that through this court case, um, you know, begins this sort of um, uh, the counter movement of sort of the desperate circumstances for reservation life for many native people. You know, this is uh, the tension that leads to um, the idea that um, what is being offered, you know, who, who has what kind of power and what kind of control, um, you know, looking at unemployment rates, looking at, you know, the influx of people from uh, back to re the reservations that were had previously moved away. Um, and, you know, uh, I mean, there's, there are other things, uh, you know, the, the main uh, Wabanaki state child welfare statistics for that period of time as well. If you look at Indian children in Maine were being placed in foster care at between 20 and 25 times higher rates than non-Indian children in the, in the early 1970s. You know, this is like, this is a, if you just think about our children as our future, if you think that they're being removed literally from our communities, from our families, unemployment, children removal, like this is, it's almost like it's entering a new gear, you know, the kinds of sort of like removing children, not, not having um, places for work for, for Native people, um, being denied services, as you mentioned, Donna, before. Um, it creates this really dynamic and sort of intensification of a situation that um, I think, you know, who has money and who has power and who's in control of what kind of institutions becomes really important um, in, you know, in this time period of like 72 to 1980. Um, and I think that's, that's, um, that's something that, you know, if you look at people who have written about it and, and uh, in, in that context, you know, that's one of the harder things to, ca to capture. Yeah, I think, uh, Harold, I know you want to jump in, but <laughs> I just want to say this one thing. Uh, I think that uh, during that, that time, it was like um, shortly after, well, not shortly after, but there were, there were you know, World War II played a, a big uh, role in uh, how the, the tribes addressed uh, getting back their rights or fighting for their rights. And, and it had to do with uh, friends that were made in the military. And I think John Stevens had a friend there and, and, and John Mitchell made friends and they reached out when, when they were in trouble, they reached out to their uh, military acquaintances and uh, got some really good advice. So uh, yeah, so Harold. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, thank you for bringing uh, indeed the name up of uh, John Stevens, um, who uh, by uh, any measure is a giant in Indian country um, for um, what he represented and what he spearheaded in terms of uh, what then led to the Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act. And while that act is um, in many ways uh, incomplete, um, and that uh, law that was then passed uh, has uh, many shortcomings, as we all know, and which were which are being dealt with uh, right now as we speak. But what John Stevens uh, did um, was, as a former Marine who had 
uh, fought in uh, the Korean War, uh, just like you saw earlier with the Penobscot, in the case of indeed um, Governor Mitchell, who had uh, fought in the Pacific against the Japanese, um, these uh, warriors are coming back home and say, okay, we are fighting against tyranny and oppression um, and um, uh, for the, uh, showing the American way of life as this wonderful kind of thing. And you start saying, hey, we come back to back home and what we see here uh, are colonial situations um, inside the United States and poverty situations of countries um, like countries um, in Southeast Asia and in Africa that were former colonies that have become independent uh, but are suffering from poverty and um, exploitation nevertheless. And so the uh, anger that um, was felt uh, was placed in a kind of a broader context of uh, that I mentioned earlier the, of the Cold War, right? And here is the Cold War of the free world, so supposedly against um, the totalitarian communist regimes of the uh, of the Chinese Red State and the Soviet Union, that stands for a complete, completely radically different way of life. And if that wonderful free uh, market, uh, that capitalist way of life is such a wonderful pathway toward human happiness, how come there's so much misery uh, on the reservations? And so it became a, an issue that um, was personally felt by John Stevens and um, I don't want to get into the details of that history, but uh, he basically began to take action very quickly after he returned home from Korea, was elected to tribal governor at um, what was then primarily known as Indian Township um, uh, near Princeton. Um, and uh, as Darren was just mentioning, that led to protesting uh, the taking away of part of, uh, I think, 6,000 acres or so of Indian Township. Uh, without uh, proper proper jurisdiction, uh, and that was contested, and that led to these uh, sit-ins uh, in the 1960s uh, by Passamaquoddy. And so a whole series of actions by literally hundreds and hundreds of uh, Wabanaki from the four tribes uh, all began to fit within that larger configuration of a native rights struggle that wasn't directed from one particular place. They had multiple uh, uh, pressure points, if you will, and events, but they all collectively begin to uh, coalesce in um, a movement uh, that began to build up pressure uh, against the state of Maine in this case um, to make amends uh, to the wrongs that were perpetrated from generation to generation in a uh, society that was largely ignorant of what had really happened in main history. Um, we mentioned earlier uh, uh, several um, uh, broadcasts ago that many of the early textbooks, um, history books of Maine were written by politicians and by um, attorneys who themselves were part of dominant society and uh, had a blind spot to put it mildly toward what happened uh, with respect to um, the role of the Wabanaki in the formation of what became the state of Maine. So what became, like we just had a few years ago, the bicentennial, that's supposed to be a moment of celebration, 
But we all know, um, of anyone who knows anything about um, the history of the Wabanaki, um, 1820 was not a high point, but it was a deep point. Um, that was a point uh, where the dispossession was almost complete after two treaties, the treaties of 1796 and the treaty of 1818, that was basically reproduced um, almost verbatim when Massachusetts um, gave up its jurisdiction over the state of Maine and Maine became independent as a state. And then, of course, we had the um, basically the robbery of the uh, four townships in the uh, 1830s. This awareness um, on the part of society at large of what happened in the state of Maine with respect to indigenous peoples was a gigantic blank spot. And uh, the little that people knew in general was either just completely wrong romanticism or it was so spotty that they only knew about, uh, let's say, high unemployment uh, or, let's say, lack of drinking water or you name it, without really understanding the structural uh, problems within the state that is so uh, deep on every level. It's, uh, that, that problem is happening on, on the level of the worldview, the way people look at the world in which we live and act upon it. It is true for the level of the political representation or the lack thereof, the economic participation or the lack thereof, uh, and also the loss of uh, uh, ownership over the natural resources, whether that's land or rivers. And so that struggle is ongoing, whereby um, uh, courts of justice uh, with men and women trained in law pass judgments and rule without really often even the most fundamental knowledge about the issues that they're supposed to be ruling on other than purely the, the legal history of these um, cases. In other words, uh, I am, after 40 years uh, working in Indian country, uh, I'm often appalled with the smugness almost with which judges sit there and rule and haven't done their fundamental homework on trying to figure out what really happened. And as a result, they perpetrate injustice while they are supposedly trying to solve injustice. And I would uh, argue that if the Supreme Court ever has a new opening, that is high time to have Native American Supreme Court justice nomination. It's kind of an amazing thing to think that um, since the um, passing of the American Constitution and the, uh, the founding of the American Republic, that you have a Supreme Court uh, without any person of native background. Uh, and I don't say that you have to be of native background in order to stay, understand native uh, history. I myself am a foreigner. So in that, if that was the case, I would have to shut up. Uh, people can learn it, but it takes a long time. And even if you are a native person, it takes a long time to figure out that convoluted history. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's uh, on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Darren? Yeah, no, and I, um, I just got to, again, just a more recent specific um, experience with it. The, uh, um, the watching the, uh, the judiciary um, in the state legislature, the Judiciary Committee, and 
Um, I, I will say that I think um, its current leadership uh, is, is quite solid, um, but, um, and I think they understand um, the context of, of what, you know, a sovereignty bill would do or, or where it comes from. But, you know, I'm, I'm quite floored that those, the people, and I know, Donna, this is one of the intents of the, of the LD291 main history <laughs> and, uh, and, and culture law that, that you are, you know, largely responsible for was to have an informed citizenry so they could actually make, you know, more solid public policy, but quite clearly the majority of this uh, judiciary or a lot of them, I don't know if it's the majority, but um, you know, they, they, they uh, don't understand. I mean, their questions are, you know, and, and one of the people I, is like a, a teacher in a school that my kids used to be in and, you know, didn't know, you know, the difference between sovereignty and sovereign immunity and he he'd been working on this so long, and yet didn't know some basic <clears throat> basic things about the context of even what I, I have no idea what what uh, the confusion of thing basic things like this that and these are the people deciding right the 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 future or of of our tribal sovereignty um, without understanding any of the basic. Uh, legal um, and historical infrastructure. Uh, and this is someone, I only pick on him, I'm not going to mention his name, because he, he's a, I believe, a history or civics teacher, you know, it's just like really crazy to think that, you know, his questions about this um, are, are, you know, someone who's making a decision about, about these things. And I think, so it goes all the way from judges all the way down to our legislators, um, um, and I think uh, the understanding, you know, and I think um, when I think about the 70s and the lead up, you know, between, you know, 72, 75 to, to the Settlement Act. Um, and I, you know, I think you've said this and others have said it too, Donna, that it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, they really, you know, with the opportunity for <laughs> some justice, <laughs> it was almost like, you know, they wanted to have the the boot even stronger on our necks, you know, like like things got very scarce um, for native people. Um, pretty much every politician of every stripe in the '70s made a lot of hay about um, not, um, you know, no no nation within a nation. They had all sorts of things that they said that were anti-Indian. Um, and, um, you know, it was, didn't matter the party of the person, you know, uh, I, I think they all were against it. Um, the state of Maine, um, you know, the, the settlement act, you know, the funding for the settlement act, and we can talk more about it, but none of the monies came from the state of Maine, even though they're, they're the ones that took all our resources and money, the federal government, I mean, really the 1980 Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act is a bail out the state of Maine Act uh, for basically fraudulent uh, land dealings with Indians. Um, you know, and I think they, I mean, to, to reframe it that way, as opposed to like, oh, you know, the Indians finally got a little bit of something, um, really misunderstands the sort of ways in which um, 
the state of Maine was um, benefiting at the time. Um, you know, they can say there's no nation within a nation, but explain to me why, how there's not a nation within a nation if you look at those rates of unemployment and those rates of child removal. That's a nation within a nation. You know, just giving us some uh, opportunity to control that. Um, you know, that to me strikes me as the, the path towards justice. So I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of framing that I, I'm trying not to accept, you know, uh, that is, is given us that, you know, we somehow, um, the state shifted at some point. I don't think the state has shifted by and large. I think uh, I will say that there's a lot more legislators, uh, most of them from Southern Maine, um, but from other places as well. A lot of more legislators that do understand the contours of this um, uh, piece. And that's why we're at the state we're at um, with, with, with legislation. Um, but it only takes you know one or two people to sink it in key positions as, as we're seeing. So I think this, this run up, um, this time period up before the Settlement Act sets the stage for um, our current um, lack of engagement between the tribes and the state. I think this, um, and I can't, you know, I don't know what, what you know, goes on in people's minds or hearts and um, not going to say it's racism or not or whatever it is, but I, I've never understood the, the fear, I guess, and sort of allowing <laughs> the tribes to control our own destinies. It, it would strike me that that would be something that people who are for, you know, uh, self-determination and limited government and, you know, all of that, they would support uh, tribes um, uh, controlling their own destiny. So I, I guess I don't fully understand, the, you know, the, the, the reluctance in these, in these parts. Yeah, I do want to go back to what something you said earlier, uh, when you started talking about, uh, <clears throat> about the law, that the uh, Indian history law. And, uh, you know, I want to make a point that I think the person you're talking about on judiciary, that probably was already in law school, when this, uh, Bill, you know, was a requirement in in uh, in uh, public schools. Sure, sure. So a lot of <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot of them still, you know, they're they've been there for ever and ever. The, you know, their lifetime uh, politicians, and uh, for, yeah. for their political lifetime, they've fought Indian bills, and uh, yeah. and they continue to do so, uh, and. But there are some. Yeah, and I don't think they remember why. I, I guess, you know, my, my point is, I'm not sure if they even remember why. You know, I think it's oh, yeah. like, I, I think it's like, just, I think it's a status quo. I mean, I can't, again, I don't know, but I, I, I don't know if they remember why they're against it. Um, you know, I, I, uh, uh, they, they aren't able to articulate it. Um, um, a lot of the position by say the governor and the attorney general is is sort of like, well, we have questions, you know, we're we're not sure, you know, and then that becomes the <laughs> the the rationale of not not acting. And you know, I'm on, I'm as you know, I'm a, I'm a Penobscot Nation representative to the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission, right? So that's a 
an entity um, created by the Settlement Act. And, um, you know, same, same thing with state commissioners. They, they're like, well, I still have questions about that. So I'm, I'm not comfortable voting for that. And then I'll say, oh, what are your questions? Because I, I don't know. I study this a lot, spend a lot of time. <laughs> you know, like maybe I can help you answer them, but then that's not the point because then they're like, "Oh, it's really just generally." I I have and I'm like, "So generally, what are your you know?" It's not, it's it's just a thing. It, it's not an honest. I mean, it's not even honest, right? It's not like, oh, I'm just worried that the tribes are gonna you know, mess with non-native people and make, make our lives worse. You know, like they don't even have the guts to say that. Although I guess that, you know, when they're more being more truthful, that's intimated. Um, um, but I think it's, yeah, I think it's a really, it's a tough dynamic around changing hearts and minds, you know, and I, I really do think it's like, you know, anything that's change or, or new, um, and in the positions that people take, especially when they're benefiting from a situation. Um, so I think that's the, the difficult part of this. Harold? Yeah, I was uh, kind of uh, struck by uh, Ed Darren's uh, use of the term uh, of changing hearts and minds, because that's of course the, uh, the term that is used for psychological warfare um, <laughs> when you talk about CIA <laughs> operations overseas. Um, <laughs> And so changing hearts and minds, which is the whole objective, right, of what the Germans uh, have a wonderful term for that, psychological warfare, is a translation of a, um, a very free translation of a German term. And I will tell you, the German term is Weltanschauungskrieg. It has a real amazing uh, sound to it, Weltanschauungskrieg. Krieg is warfare and Weltanschauung, Welt is world, Anschauung is the way you look at the world. So it's basically a war of worldviews and that's really what's going on um, uh, that you have a worldview by Americans, many Americans that is informed by the melting pot ideology, right? The melting pot ideology of all those people from across the world coming to the United States and become Americans and then assimilate. So people coming from Poland, coming from Somalia, coming from uh, Vietnam, they can all become Americans, naturalized as Americans, but um, they have to become Americans to become part of the American nation. And so while that is true for immigrants, and I think that's an important um, tenet uh, that I uh, fully support, that if you become part of a country that you adjust to that country, I'm a Dutchman, I live here, I'm not an American citizen, I'm a Dutch citizen, but I've lived here for a long time. And I don't insist upon other people trying to speak Dutch in order to uh, communicate with me. It's my task to speak in, in English uh, and adjust to American laws and American culture. Uh, and I try to do that. The difference is that the assimilation of uh, foreigners from the moment that this country uh, started uh, in the form of a series of colonies, uh, French, Spanish and English uh, colonies and Dutch, these were the four major colonizing nations from Western Europe that established these beachheads on the North American continent. Um, that then led to, uh, after about uh, 200, 300 years, 250 years to the foundation of the American Republic. And the idea was, as the American Republic expanded all the way from shining sea to shining sea, from the Atlantic seaboard to the Pacific, that 
it wild rolled as this massive movement spearheaded by um, colonists in search of better grazing lands, lumber, gold, uh, you name it, um, and then backed up by the American military, uh, the cavalry and the, the militias and the whatever you may have, that ultimately um, the two shores from the Pacific to the Atlantic were united. Uh, the Mexicans were thrown out, the Russians were thrown out of Alaska. And so what you then had uh, was just north of the border were primarily British Canadians and then south of the border were Spanish um, Mexicans. But in between was going to be a kind of larger Boston, you know, you get to, or a larger Manhattan. There was this idea about um, an America that was English speaking, um, ideally Protestant and um, white. So that meant that you had black people who could not vote, of course, uh, until very, very late. So anyone who is talking about the American Constitution and the foundation of the American Republic has to keep in mind that that was a white dominant, male dominated uh, world and worldview that fueled it. And the idea of assimilating Indians would only happen on conditions set by the government and by dominant society. And so there's a contradiction that has always been going on. And in a way, I think it's probably will never be resolved, that contradiction. And the contradiction is, and Darren was just referring to the concept of the nation within the nation, but it's that idea of a United States with, which is pockmarked by these pieces of Indian country called reservations. And they're small east of the Mississippi, but we all know they're huge tracts of land in New Mexico, Arizona, South Dakota, North Dakota. These are very, very vast uh, territories uh, inhabited by um, uh, indigenous peoples. And a lot of Americans find it very strange that when you look at these uh, tracts of Indian country called reservations, that state governments do not have jurisdiction over these tracts of land. These are in federal uh, trust relationships, but not federally owned. These are owned by Indian people. And I think in Maine, that has 200 years of state-controlled reservations and state-controlled indigenous communities, the idea that uh, the state does not have an inherent sovereign right over Indian country in Maine is somehow very difficult for people to wrap their brains around. And yet that is of course the reality in South Dakota when you talk about uh, Pine Ridge or you talk about the Navajo reservation, that's not the state of New Mexico or in the case of the Navajo also in Arizona. They, this, the, the, the governor of, of Arizona or the governor of New Mexico is not in charge over Indian country within the bounds of the Navajo or the Hopi reservations or the Zuni reservations. And so uh, many Native Americans in Maine, the Wabanaki, are drawing parallels to the political realities that Indian country uh, enjoys, in quotation marks, uh, with respect to state and federal uh, sovereign powers and realize that that is different in the state of Maine than in South Dakota or North Dakota, or in, as I mentioned before, Arizona, New Mexico, Oklahoma. And th they want equity with that kind of uh, relationship. And that means a retreat on the part of the state of Maine in terms of what it has wrongfully claimed for 200 years was its inherent power 
over the over the tribes. And that is why history is so important that you go back to why the 1790 uh, the, the 1790 Non-Intercourse Act was so important. And why in the case of the Mainland Land Claims case, while the, why the judge ruled that the 1790 Non-Intercourse Act was violated when uh, the Treaty of 1796 uh, and 1794 for the Passamaquoddy and later for the Penobscot, the 1818 Treaty and the 1820 Treaty and the um, dispossession of the 1830s of the four townships, they were all in violation of a federal law that George Washington had taught, uh, reassured the Seneca Nation at the time that the federal government would make sure that state governments would not uh, exert control and dispossess uh, Indian nations within its uh, state boundaries. And yet that's exactly what Massachusetts followed by Maine did. And that fundamental knowledge is, I think, utterly lacking in the awareness on the part of, I think, uh, many legislators. I could ask these people a series of questions and I think within 10 minutes, they would fail the test of fundamental knowledge about how exactly uh, the Maine Indian Land Claims case was built up. Why, why was the Non-Intercourse Act ruled uh, uh, to have um, been in violation of when the treaties were signed? And so in 1980, when you get the Settlement Act being, uh, the, uh, the Maine Indian Land Claims being settled out of court, basically what you have is a situation that was dissatisfying to both parties, like almost every mediated settlement is. Neither party gets what it wanted. So the state of Maine didn't get what it wanted. Uh, the state, the tribes didn't get what it wanted. And there's this ongoing tug of war that is going on. The only ones that really made off well were the paper companies, because that was a federally funded bailout of um, paper companies who could not make enough revenue anymore out of their forest land in the timber industry that was getting international competition out of Canada. And so in the negotiations, there were, was a winner, and these winners were the, the large paper companies and the, um, the families that have humongous amounts of land uh, in Maine. And that is one of the other things that I think is a surprise, was a surprise to me, that from the very beginning of Maine statehood was the extraordinary uh, land, large land holdings by individuals who would own hundreds and thousands of acres. And that is against the idea of what most people think about in terms of Maine. You see the nice coat of arms that Maine has with the pine tree in it. And there's a sailor on the one hand and there's a human farmer on the other hand. But where's the capitalist? The capitalist should have been the third figure in that, uh, in that coat of arms because he owned or she owned in some case, most, mostly male, they owned most of the land in Maine. And it, just to mention names here, uh, Bowdoin College, named after James Bowden, Governor James Bowden, a very wealthy merchant in Boston, was one of the Kennebec proprietors, but these were massive dispossessors of Indian country here in the Kennebec Valley. Uh, two to three million acres were dispossessed of the Wabanaki in a most, um, I would almost say disgusting way in which that was done because the sanctimoniousness with which these people sing their songs and hymns back in Boston when they go to church. Um, and they, with a the stroke of a pen, 
eliminate an entire tribe, in this case, the, the, the Kanapak Indians. And we know that many Penobscots uh, have ancestry that reaches back into the Kanapak, uh, into the Kanapak Valley. Um, the soccer Lexuses are well known. There's a family from the, from, from, uh, the, the Kanapak here, but so is the uh, family of Nicolar, Joseph Nicolar. Uh, his ancestors came from the from the Kennebec, and this was a massive dispossession, without compensation, in a way that uh, basically the tribes, uh, when the, the dispossession happened here, were declared extinct. That's exactly what uh, in the 1870s uh, the 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 sup state supreme court tried to argue with respect to the Pesimgodi. You don't exist as a tribe. So once you eliminate yourself as a tribe, you're gone. You have no rights. You cease to exist. So it's a very interesting way of committing genocide, not by killing people off, but by killing off their status. And that's, of course, the, the, the hallmark of assimilation, that you make them American citizens, but they at, the, at the expense of their uh, identity as indigenous peoples with uh, traditional rights to land and other resources uh, in well-defined uh, territorial domains. Yeah, and I... <laughs> I, it makes me think that, uh, you know, there used to, it used to be, you know, during the colonial times or whatever, it was war, it was fighting uh, on the battlefield. Well, now the battlefield uh, is the courts, it's the law. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's a field that's uh, been already uh, uh, laid out by the, the non-native people or the, the majority culture. They make the rules, um, and uh, we are, we, you know, as Native people, we find ourselves going back into history, reviewing those laws, and maybe trying to find some way to get a foothold in there that, uh, you know, it's going to that's going to help us move forward uh, towards our own sovereignty, towards our own self determination, using their rules and their laws, and particularly in Maine because. Maine really uh, set itself apart and isolated itself uh, from the other states and, you know, the uh, west of the Mississippi and uh, states that, uh, I mean, in, in uh, tr tribes that are under, uh, under federal, federal law. So Maine did a good job in, in shutting us out of that. Yeah, no, I just think I, I want to just go back to my point. Uh, Harold and, and Donna just, I, I do think because of some key, uh, um, some key clauses in the Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act, and I know that, you know, in the next uh, five minutes, we probably don't have uh, time to go over it. Um, but I would say that, uh, you know, a couple of the, you know, and these are well known, of course, the the, the, the part that is, you know, has the municipality language and then the part that um, um, bars tribal, uh, our tribes from participating in federal programs, unless, you know, um, unless we're named in the federal legislation, you know, these are probably the two biggest clauses that are uh, ex exceptions, right, that mark us uh, differently. And then the fact that the state of Maine, of course, did not you know, for basically taking all this resources or supervising the the transfer of our property. I mean, it's it's not just. I mean, it's not just an identity thing. The identity thing is the last part of the. Uh, I mean, getting rid of us is the last part of the thing that starts with you know 
illegally taking our land you know, and, and creating wealth for non-native people out of our, you know, I mean, that's the, these are the sort of uh, frameworks for that. But I, I do think that, um, you know, yeah, this, these federal, I mean, a, a finer point that you put on it, Harold, that, um, yeah, the federal dollars actually eventually make their way into the coffers of large landowners. I mean, we've seen it all too. It's almost a joke now, right? That who gets bailed out <laughs> from anything now is why, you know, banks get bailed out, not mortgage holders, right? I mean, we, we kind of are kind of numb to the sort of injustice of it all. Um, and when you add in the sort of racialization of our experience as Native people in the state of Maine, like it is, it seems almost like a foregone conclusion, but for us, it's not. I mean, it's simply just, you know, our lands, our resources, our sovereignty um, are tied to our identities so, so fundamentally. Uh, and I think the, the, the notion that our, our flourishing is a threat to anyone, um, uh, you know, our control is a threat to anyone is, is I think a real, um, it's just an odd position, you know, and I think, you know, the research, you know, I'm bound by research. When tribes are doing well, the the states that they're in are doing well. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's like a pretty obvious thing. It's not like it's not a zero sum game. It's not we do better as tribes, therefore the state of Maine will do worse. It's 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 quite the opposite. Um, but I think it's you know, and um, really kudos to the report that just came out, uh, Donna, One Nation Under Fraud, because I want to quote from it. Um, <laughs> for a while, I, I was reading it a romance, but that's not what it says. It's a, it's a <laughs> remonstrance. I don't it's even know. It's not a romance, that's for damn sure. <laughs> it's a, it's a really, anyway, I think, I think this is just how I want to, um, we only have like two and a half minutes left and I kind of want to wrap with this quote. Um, and because I think this sets up the kind of the back and forth that starts with within the context of the Settlement Act is um, just quoting from page 66 of, of One Nation Under Fraud, um, quote, instead, Maine seems to want a hybrid relationship with the tribes, seeking complete control over matters like jurisdiction over felonies committed on reservation lands, control of sovereign status, and a stranglehold over any political or economic efforts that bear even remotely an extra-tribal interest. All bear remotely on any extra-tribal interests, all the while denying the tribes any conduit for channeling their concerns to a governmental body equipped to address these systemic inequalities. So that's why, you know, we brought up with the civil rights report, these sort of, you know, ghastly economic conditions that, um, you know, really play into the decision-making and the urgencies and the decision-making that lead up to the Settlement Act um, with, with, you know, just the um, ability for, for, for Maine. And, and I pointed this out all, all along since Indians not taxed in the constitution all the way through um, Murch, Tomer, Granger, you know, State versus Newell, the state of Maine wants it both ways. This is a great quote because it is simply like they want complete control, but they don't want what comes with the, the responsibility of that complete control either. So they want it to be just they get to profit and they don't have to pay for anything. So that's that's where I'm going to end. And hopefully that'll set up for next time. Yeah, great. 
Carol. Yeah, I was, uh, uh, just to quickly go back to what Darren was saying earlier about uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act and um, the um, issue of um, uh, placing Native children out of um, Native homes at an extraordinary high rate. Um, that too has to be seen um, as one of these complicated issues that on the one hand, you have poverty, of course, and you had high alcoholism rates, which were part of the problem. But what is also part of the problem is by raising these children in non-Indian households, uh, you of course achieve your objective of assimilation. They will not know about their native heritage. Um, and as a result, um, uh, that plays into the larger objective of the melting pot idea uh, by removing these children early on so they will be socialized in a, a non-native uh, non um, cultural environment. And that plays also into the same kind of contradictions uh, with respect to the high unemployment on the reservations, because the higher the unemployment on the reservations, the greater the need for people is to move off the reservation and move to Connecticut or New York, whatever. And there too will become a small minority where they will be um, disappearing into the larger melting pot. So both high unemployment and the high out of um, native household placement of children are feeding into a capitalist society that's looking for cheap labor without having um, separate jurisdictions within the area where it operates. And so it eliminates the reservations that become empty. Uh, it eliminates the uh, Indian families who are losing their children. And they all become part of a larger mass that some people will rise up in terms of the higher echelons of society. And most of them will become laborers in factories um, across the United States. Yeah, and also those that end up fighting in wars. And fighting the wars, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so I think I think we're about done here. <laughs> so thank you, uh, thank you guys. Uh, tune in again next month as we go deeper into the land claim settlement. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host Donna Laurie, and you've been listening to Webinaki Windows. I want to thank professors Harold Prince and Darren Ranko for being on the show today. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and Joel Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs>